Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabia Baker Whitelaw, and here is my co host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So, this week we watched Tenet, the hotly anticipated new action thriller by Christopher Nolan. John David Washington stars as the protagonist, a CIA agent who is recruited to join a secret war involving time reversal technology. Described by some critics as one of the best films of 2020, we thought it was a nonsensical and poorly written pile of nonsense. Morgan has literally just this very second watched the film. I saw it about a week and a half ago. I imagine that between us, we are going to be able to cobble together maybe two thirds of what happened in this film. Um, Because not only does it not make sense, but as soon as you finished watching the stuff that did make sense kind of just like evaporates from your brain. We both are big fans of Christopher Nolan, despite his various faults, primarily his inability to understand women. But oh gosh, was this was this a misfire? (laughs) Yes, I imagine also that most people listening to this have not seen the movie. Mm. I'm guessing that that's the case. I'm sure some of you have, but especially people in America, it obviously was in some cinemas, but in New York, for instance, it just was never released here. And you can watch it on demand now, but it's $20. So if you, maybe if you're, you know, staying with your family, you might rent it and watch it. But like, for me, the reason I like ordered a sketchy Blu-ray off eBay was that I did not want to pay $20 to rent Tenet because for one person, it was not, you know, sensible. So my approach here is going to be that we are talking to an audience that has not seen this movie and we will be spoiling in quotes the movie yeah. because like how do you talk about the plot of this movie it doesn't make any fucking sense and i think the context of us explaining that like we like christopher nolan and his films is key because this man needs an intervention and i say that absolutely <laughs> from a place of love we like, both loved dunkirk we loved dunkirk i think it is possible that except for the critic Bilga Beery, who also loved this movie, I liked Dunkirk more than any other person on Earth. Like, I love Dunkirk. I think it is a masterpiece. Like, I, basically a perfect movie in my mind. And this is... Morgan, not. it's claptrap. It's hogwash. It is, if I may say, malarkey. Whatever was going on here, true disaster. Um, We can go into the whys and wherefores, obviously, but just the fact that so many film critics are kind of putting this on their best of 2020 lists is truly beyond to me. I think partly it's like the hype level. A few are, and a lot gave it positive reviews. It had far more negative reviews than any other Christopher Nolan movie, but the idea of people who I personally respect thinking this film is good is... I can only think that it's like a combination of being bamboozled by the allure of Mr. Nolan and the fact that everyone has just gone a bit mad this year because it was like, we wanted this blockbuster to come out. We've been looking forward to it for months and you finally get to see it. And it's like, oh, okay, right. It's about a guy named the protagonist running around for two hours with no personality. Sure. (laughs) Okay. Well, what was sort of fascinating to me about it was that you know, I ha- so I had a Blu-ray of this. I have a big TV. Obviously, it is not the same as seeing it in a movie theater. But, like, certainly the picture looked good, right? And I think that, with the exception of the sound design, which we will discuss, I think, other than that, this really is a pretty phenomenal technical accomplishment. Christopher Nolan knows how to direct a film. The cinematography of this movie is gorgeous. He has the money to shoot on, you know, IMAX 70mm, which most people don't 
have the capacity to do, and he actually knows how to do that, which helps. And the score, which is by um, Ludwig Göransson, who won the Oscar for the Black Panther score and has done all of Ryan Coogler's movies and does the score for The Mandalorian, I think is the best score I've heard in a movie this year. I think it was really superb. And there are a couple action sequences that I thought were really thrilling out of context of like the plot of the movie. Like if you're just watching in the sense of like, is this pleasurable to watch on an aesthetic level? There are definitely some scenes and we'll, you know, pick them out that I was like, oh yeah, this is a great filmmaker. Like he really does know what he's doing. But the script is worse than any movie I've seen this year. It is completely incoherent. I mean, the film makes no sense. And there's definitely people who are feeling very smug about the fact that they understood what's happened and they've decoded the reality of Tenet. But the fact is that the movie doesn't make sense. Like if the movie is not, if it's not transmitting its message well enough that like professional film critics are still confused, which was a word that was brought up in many of the reviews, the plot and the emotional stakes are completely incoherent. So I completely agree with everything Morgan said about the direction being very impressive. And like, technically speaking, Chris Nolan's great. We love him. He is unique in his combination of creativity and like blockbuster, big budget filmmaking. But like, what was this film about? I mean, literally the protagonist who is called the protagonist did not have an emotional arc. And it's like the only movie I've seen where virtually every single conversation was exposition. But the more they explained, the less it made sense because the central conceit was there's a technology which can allow material objects to move backwards in time. So it's not like a time travel slash time machine movie exactly, but that's the general thing. So they explain this in the very earliest exposition scenes by using a bullet and a gun. So it's like a bullet flies out of a bullet hole into the gun. And the main character has this explained to him by a scientist. It's like, oh, your intention to do this thing in the future kind of shapes the timeline of this object. And it's such an easily understandable kind of kinetic idea that I was watching it and I was just imagining how you could have this exact concept in a much stupider, simpler and more entertaining action movie because you can tell that Christopher Nolan has thought long and hard over how to make an action movie where objects like cars and bullets and stuff can go backwards. And they went to all this trouble of filming these actors doing stuff backwards and then playing it forwards and all this shit. But they've done it in the context of this time travel war where the main character is already a spy at the beginning of the movie. He's a, he is a CIA agent and he is recruited to participate in this war against an unlabeled enemy in the future who is like sending back these items as kind of detritus of the future war so the people in the present can kind of find out that this war is going to happen and then eventually we're introduced to the primary antagonist who is a Russian oligarch played very absurdly by Kenneth Branagh just a hilarious piece of casting oh my god just awful very hammy and then the rest of the movie is kind of John David Washington the protagonist along with various associates, including Robert Pattinson, who's like the only good part of this movie for me. And they're going up against this like absurd Russian Bond villain, but it's not fun. And it's so hard to understand. And like, obviously we're going to go into spoilers here, but Morgan, just a quick question as someone who just watched this movie. There is, without going into detail, a final battle sequence in this movie, as you would expect. It ends in like a big old fight between the goodies and the baddies. Who are the goodies fighting? Um, I, the whole last sequence, I was like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on. <laughs> yeah, because like, I was like, who genuinely. is the opposing army? 
what? I mean, for, I didn't, like, while I was watching that, admittedly, if one is watching this in a serene and quiet cinema, probably, you know, you're able to follow it more. But I was watching it with a couple of friends and the baby. The baby was very excited to point out all the cars. So that was somewhat distracting when there's someone yelling car. <laughs> and also my friends and I were sort of like joking a bit over it because it was so fucking boring at some points. So by the end, we were like, what country are they in? And I was like, oh, well, they're definitely in like Russia somewhere. And then someone else thought they were in Vietnam. And then we were all wrong because it turned out they were just like, oh my God. We couldn't tell where or when they were or who the main guys were fighting. <laughs> that last sequence... Like, they've clearly built up, it's clearly partially built and partially, you know, CGI, a fake city for them to demolish, which was quite very reminiscent of the, like, limbo in Inception. Yeah. Right? And it was like the Russians, it was like a, it was the irradiated Russian city that the Russian villain grew up in, because of course, the main things that one finds in Russian is Russia is evil oligarchs, nuclear radiation, misogyny, and vodka, which they managed to cram into that one wildly culturally sensitive portrayal. <laughs> I mean, I found Kenneth Branagh actually quite fun in this movie. I mean, he's absurd, but he's not playing a human. Like, he's yeah, just I hamming mean, it up. Yeah, I mean, if the movie like... was more fun, he would have been appropriate. He would have been appropriate for a Bond film, which just made it very yeah. comical that Christopher Nolan has famously been in demand for Bond and kept turning it down. It's like, no, I have my original art projects to do. And then he makes this I movie, mean, which is like a non-fun Bond he, film. <laughs> he's obsessed with Bond. And I think part of the reason he has repeatedly said no to it is that the Broccoli family that controls the Bond movies are famously unbelievably controlling of the oh, artists they hire. Yeah. So I think if he were given complete free reign over Bond, he might do it. But that there is not a universe in which that would occur. Also, so. crucially, he doesn't know what sex is, which is abundantly clear in this film. Yes. <laughs> but I actually thought Branagh was fine. I mean, I am not bothered by, like, a cartoonish evil Russian character, because that's a staple of the Hollywood cinema. Like, I mean, it is what it is, right? Like, there are worse stereotypes that can be invoked that would be more upsetting to me than, like, a Russian evil man who drinks vodka. Like, whatever. It's, it's fine. We've seen this before. And I thought Elizabeth Debicki, who plays his wife, whom he is abusing, the character is, the whole situation is gross. But I actually thought her performance was quite good. Oh, like, she she's was a great. Very good she actress. was doing absolutely the best she could with a comically silly role. Yes. <laughs> and Pattinson also is very fun. But like, he shows up at the beginning of the movie and there's no explanation of why he's there. Or who he is. He just suddenly appears. And then he and John David Washington are like scaling a building together. And you're correct that there are a number, a number of scenes where things are being explained. But they actually don't explain enough. No. Because, I mean, I certainly never really understood who any of these people were or why they were doing what they were doing or how they were connected to each other. I mean, they Well, crucially, the protagonist... The best film of Nolan's to compare this to is very obviously Inception because yeah. Inception is also kind of sci-fi. It also has extremely simple characterization for the main characters and it has to put in a lot of exposition for a concept which is famously quite confusing. But I think you can watch Inception on a very shallow kind of frivolous level because it just works as a heist movie. And like any good heist movie, they introduce every one of the individual team members in a really evocative way. Like they have different outfits, you know, they have a couple of clearly defined character traits. So even if you're a bit lost on like the intricacies of their time dilation, dream, sci-fi, whatever, it just doesn't matter because the movie's fun and you engage with the characters. 
And obviously the main kind of, the main Leonardo DiCaprio guy's motive is like, you know, it's like, oh no, dead wife, which is old stuff. We've done a whole episode on Inception. You should listen to it because we are both experts in that movie. But with this film, they literally introduce a main character who also is the first time Christopher Nolan has ever worked with a black main character. Um, He has occasionally put people of colour in supporting roles in his movies, but, you know, he's a very white filmmaker and it is very unfortunate that this fact overlapped with his worst movie because you literally have hired John David Washington, who is not particularly charismatic, like he's not a good enough actor to carry a character with no personality, and you've given him this completely punishing role where literally at no point does he get any kind of emotional motivation. We're, We're introduced to him at a point where... He has no origin story, really, because he already is a CIA agent. And it's not CIA in a real way, it's CIA in a Hollywood way. So there's no kind of political connotations to this. He's just like a badass spy, you know, superhero action man. And then he gets recruited to do this time travel thing. And it's all very James Bond. And he has very, like, beautiful suits and he travels to exotic locations. And he's never really upset by anything. And he doesn't have any personal connection to his goal, which is to defeat the villain. And once we're introduced to Elizabeth Debicki's character, who's really the only female character with a particularly major role, there's also an arms dealer played by Dimple Capadia, who is pretty cool, but, you know, she's also just an exposition character. But um, Elizabeth Debicki is the wife of the Russian oligarch played by Kenneth Branagh. And her role is that she is a victim of domestic violence and therefore needs to be protected by the main man. So they kind of team up uh, to defeat the baddie with help from Robert Pattinson and it's just like you get to a point about two-thirds of the way through where suddenly the protagonist is very invested in Elizabeth Debicki and I'm like you haven't earned this because he's just been like killing people willy-nilly and he's suddenly really kind of protective of her and I'm like even in the context of this being like a sexist Hollywood movie where we automatically kind of side with this tragic woman who has a hard life because she needs protecting by a tough man they haven't even set up the basic kind of emotional beats for us to swallow that because I will enjoy a Bond film on those terms, but they haven't even done that. And the reason why I liked Robert Pattinson so much is because Robert Pattinson, obviously we all know I love him as an actor, but also he was really the only character apart from the Russian oligarch who felt like a person because he was playing really specifically into all these sort of posh English tropes. And he was just very specifically like of a type and felt like that sort of expat spy, like upper class Oxford wanky stuff. But none of that's in the script. Absolutely not. It's like, all Robert Pattinson. It's completely yeah. performance. Uh-huh. And that character, I enjoyed him because I love him. So like, yeah. I'm happy to watch him do whatever. But that character made no sense to me. Because he just shows up and does stuff throughout the movie. And oh, I was absolutely. like, who are you? Like, why are you here? It was like a badly written sort of action video game in that respect. Because there were so many characters who show up without an ancillary emotional arc who are just there to deploy information. Yes. And the John David Washington situation, he's just, he, he can't do it. It's, I feel mean, but like, he's an adult man. He has a lot of money. So it's fine. I thought he was totally fine in Black Klansman, which is how he got this movie. But he's kind of playing a cartoon in that film, too, like, intentionally. And I think it works in that movie. Like, he's not playing uh, that part with a lot of depth. And I think that film knows that. In this, he's given nothing. And he absolutely does not have the skill or charisma to pull it off. Like, it would be a tall order for any actor. But, like, 
I think all the other actors wind up looking better because next to him, I was like, Kenneth Branagh seems fine. Like, he's kind of doing something. Just kind of shushing it up a little bit. Because, because the, John David Washington was like laboriously like saying his lines. And I was just like, oh my God, you just, there's nothing happening here. He's given much less than Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception to work with because Inception is a movie about, you know, a generic protagonist man who's having a breakdown because his wife is dead, which is like a character to play. And then you have like an A-list star who can really sell that. And in this, you've got a character who literally, (laughs) I know I've said this like four times already, but he literally doesn't have an emotional arc. We don't know anything about his background. We don't know why he joined the CIA. We don't know his motives for anything. And he doesn't like express very much emotion apart from like, I mean, obviously he has like reactions and action scenes and stuff, but it's just it, all the elements have gone wrong there. Cause it's like, you've got very poor writing, writing for him on a character perspective, which is like the number one problem. And then direction wise, Christopher Nolan isn't really giving him much to do other than, you know, cool action sequences where he looks, you know, attractive and is good at fighting. And then John David Washington, you know, he's not, an experienced charismatic a-lister you know he's fine <laughs> he's fine i don't even think he's fine i think he's bad like <laughs> no, I, i'm I think, sorry yeah like, he's fine in black clansman so it's like when he's given a character which is like has specific traits and has to have emotions in the right places it was very painful wooden wooden dialogue yeah. readings like ugh. i mean i think a good thing to actually compare this to would be john wick because john wick is famously lacking in information Um, And also a lot of people have like very varied opinions on Keanu Reeves as an actor. Like a lot of people think he's a bad actor and he has like a limited range, but you watch John Wick and you're like, this is an incredible performance. He's perfect. And it doesn't matter that you barely know anything about him because it's like, you know, he, he, he is a movie star for a reason and it works. And in this case, it did not work. No, no. Well, the script just doesn't. And again, I just really ragged on that performance and I do not think he is a very good actor, but like no one could have made this movie good. Like you could put the most talented actor in the world in that part and the movie would still be bad, right? Because the script is just completely abysmal. And you have all these scenes at the beginning where he's kind of like meeting up with various people to sort of get the plot going. But again, you genuinely are like, I have no idea who anyone is. I don't understand how they're connected to each other. Like he meets up with Michael Caine and like gets information from him. And you're like, you never see Michael Caine again. And it's like, who is he? Why? And like on a basic level of like how movies work, it just doesn't live up to like lowest level standard of like how film storytelling is supposed to function so that you can actually follow what's going on. So I found myself just not following the relationships because they aren't there. And Christopher Nolan has never been a great screenwriter. Like he's written a couple of movies that have turned out to be great, like Memento and um, Dunkirk, I think, are his Yeah, I watched Memento relatively recently and it's great. So he can do it. But in general, I don't think he's a great writer. And Dunkirk is a situation where... Like that obvious that movie obviously has a really good screenplay and like screenwriting is not just dialogue, which I think is something that people often think like it's about structuring the movie and that movie has a really ingenious structure, but it plays in so much to his abilities as a director, right? Like it's such a director's movie, that film. And it doesn't hew to like traditional storytelling methods. Like it's it's really an experimental film, which I think is really 
amazing. Like, I, that's part of why yeah. I love that movie I so think, much. like, for, for listeners who, like, haven't seen Dunkirk and maybe wrote it off, obviously, like, the fact that it is, it's like a World War II historical movie, which is a turnoff for a lot of people for very understandable reasons. And also, like, there's a lot of kind of, you know, patriotic nonsense that gets tied up in that stuff. But Morgan's right. Like, it is very different from other historical war movies in that it's all about... I mean, it's extremely emotionally visceral. It's, like, by far his most emotionally affecting movie. And it does have this unique narrative structure where there's kind of different timelines moving at different speeds. And it doesn't feel like a gimmick because Christopher Nolan's work, sometimes, you know, he'll have a concept usually around some weird time structure which will feel quite gimmicky. And Tenet is, like, obviously the nadir. Like, it's... He's just... (laughs) He's lost the plot completely. Well... It's interesting. I remember seeing Interstellar at the cinema, which I haven't seen since, and I would really like to rewatch. Actually, I'd because... like to rewatch it because I think I'd like it more the second time. Because when I saw it in theaters, I was like, "This is dumb as hell." <laughs> well, I had a really profound emotional response to it. Like, I cried in the theater, and I almost never cry at movies. But like the scene I think where I also did, and then when I got to the final third, and I was like, "You lost me." Yeah, <laughs> this the scene where McConaughey watches the videos of his kids growing up. I was like bawling, which is the scene that everyone cries at at that movie. And then the end, of course, I was like, this is remarkably stupid. Like, what the hell? And I have a vivid memory of walking back to the subway from that movie and feeling very kind of like at peace with Christopher Nolan because I was like, you know what? You're just always going to be you. And you're like, the things that you do badly, you're always going to do badly. And it just is what it is. And I can appreciate you for, like, the stuff that is good, and, like, it it's fine. And then Dunkirk was kind of surprising to me because it felt like he had kind of identified the things that he does really well and excised the stuff he doesn't do well, which is, like, relationships yeah. and women and sort of conventional narrative stuff. Like, Memento is very sort of not conventionally structured either, right? And it felt weirdly self-aware in that way for someone who's so successful like it felt like he was really even if it wasn't deliberate like it felt in some way like he was saying like okay I'm gonna do the stuff I'm really good at and that was what made it so great and I also think Dunkirk is a really emotional movie and very personal for him and I was really baffled by the critics who were like well it's a huge technical achievement but like it's very cold because I mean, obviously. I mean, you really some- feel like the peril that these characters are in, and yes. I think one of the main kind of, aside from the very obvious sexism, <laughs> one of the main things that people often remark upon with Christopher Nolan's work is that he's very sterile, especially visually, but like also in terms of sexuality. There's no sex in his movies, and where there are elements of sex, it's just very. It 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 doesn't feel kind of real. It's not something he's interested in or knows how to transmit at all to the audience, and also as his career has progressed, he's just become, it's all very kind of glamorous settings. You know, it's all very blockbustery and people kind of living in skyscrapers that don't really feel like real people, but you still engage with them because they work in a blockbuster context. And Dunkirk felt really different because, you know, even on a class basis, there are working class characters in that movie, obviously, because there's loads of foot soldiers, but there are characters who are getting dirty. Like they feel like they're experiencing real terror and pain and it's very visceral. And then this movie is completely the opposite. And like, Tenet just goes way too far in the other direction because obviously like many blockbusters and especially of the James Bond type are extremely glamorous and are about rich people. But (laughs) this movie is like taking it to this whole new level, which is just absurd. So it's like everyone in this movie is like full on one percenter, like mega rich 
or seamlessly engages with that world. So you've got like the really rich people are obviously the oligarch. You've got his wife, who is this very posh English woman. You know, Elizabeth Debicki is about to play Princess Diana. Like that's the level she's working at. And then you've got Robert Pattinson, about whom we know nothing, but from basic like personal cues in his performance, you can tell that he is very upper class in English. And then like the arms dealer people are all bajillionaires. And the main character who, usually when you have a character who's kind of a cipher like this, he's meant to be a bit more of an everyman, like Jason Bourne. But he's such a cipher that he doesn't have any kind of cultural markers of any kind. And they have this conversation where like, he has to go and go undercover somewhere. So he has to have a really new suit, a really nice new suit. And then like Michael Caine or someone is like, oh, I can recommend a tailor to you. And he's like, no, I know tailors too. And I think it's kind of meant to be like to avoid a situation where you've got like a posh, like white English person explaining something to a black guy. But it's like that is kind of emblematic of the way his character is portrayed throughout the movie, which is that he just seamlessly becomes part of all of these worlds without having any challenges that you would ordinarily have in this kind of narrative. Like you'd have the main character learning something or struggling with something, or you'd see why they know these things. And so you've got this character who, like, he starts at the beginning of the movie, like, perfectly fully formed with all these martial arts skills and stuff. And, like, he just doesn't, he doesn't experience any kind of struggle. And that is the the crucial thing that in any, like, the first day of screenwriting school, it's like, well, your main character has to have some kind of conflict. And it's like, his conflict is that he's caught up in a time travel war, but, like, there's no other element of this at all. And also, he's not, like, having fun. Because, like, you can have a movie with minimal conflict if it's, like, really fun. But he also doesn't have that. Yeah. I mean, there's just no political valence to this film at all. Like, obviously, all art is political. Yeah. And I'm sure you I mean, they drop in, like, like, a climate change reference partway through, and I was like, I feel insulted right now. <laughs> if you're trying yeah, to give me some kind of claptrap about this being some kind of climate change allegory, it is not, sir. No. Normally, when there's kind of, like, military and CIA stuff in movies, I my hackles kind of raise. Not in a Dunkirk context, like a historical movie. I love historical war movies, but like current action movies that kind of invoke this kind yeah. of imagery. And the, I really the idea don't of just like using that. like the CIA is like a code word for like, oh, these cool hyper competent spies. Because it's like, just FYI, guys, the CIA are not competent and uh, not ethical. <laughs> no. But in this movie, it's so not even coherently telegraphed or like explained who these people are or what they do. Yeah. That I was I'd like, forgotten he was a CIA agent until <laughs> I was going to the Wikipedia page to check the cast list to write like our little guide for this podcast. Yeah. So I was like, no one could even be like brainwashed by this movie because it's not like, it doesn't explain anything. And you know, the class stuff, you're absolutely right that like everyone is super rich and they're like going around on yachts, but there's nothing of any substance to that. It's just clearly that, like, he wanted to do some set pieces with, like, some fancy boats. And, like, obviously an arms dealer is going to have money, so, like, sure. But the movie is just completely empty. Like, there's just nothing happening at all. Unlike something like Dunkirk, which has sort of, I mean, I obviously do not know what Christopher Nolan's intention was when writing Dunkirk, but I view that movie as like profoundly anti-nationalistic, and I believe that I am correct in that interpretation, 
or something like The Dark Knight Rises, which is not coherent, but definitely has like a lot of stuff going on politically, right? Like there's, you could write an essay about it, even if it's not a good movie. This is just like, there's nothing. It just doesn't, it's meaningless. It's like, it's not even offensive. It's just like, okay. Like, I mean, some of the sexism stuff is offensive, which we will talk about very shortly, but like in a broader political context, I was just like, I don't even care. Like, (laughs) I can't even get worked up. It's just like, whatever. Like Inception, this is something he's been thinking about for a long time. Like the backstory of this movie is that he was kind of thinking about the concept for 20 years, which I can well believe. And Inception's case, it worked perfectly well because that is like an extremely, like it just works as a blockbuster really well. And in this case, it's like, as Morgan said, he did not have a script editor. There was no one at Warner Brothers who had the clout or inclination to tell him that what he delivered makes no sense and is not entertaining in any kind of like objective, subjective sense. But yeah, I think we should kind of just give a little bit more of an introduction to what happens in the movie past the general premise, which is hard to explain. But Morgan, you watched the movie (laughs) most recently. (laughs) I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, you can tell quite early in the film that they're going to set up a time loop concept because there's a scene early in the film where Robert Pattinson and the protagonist, they kind of infiltrate this storage unit in an airport where a bunch of cool antiques are kept and they fight these people who are completely masked from head to toe and if you have decent critical thinking faculties within a few minutes you'll figure out that they're probably fighting themselves in the future because why else would they be hiding their faces and then that is kind of once you get to the end of the film you find out that everything is kind of happening in reverse so you've got the characters are traveling forwards and backwards which is a really cool concept. He's come up with this great idea. It's illustrated in a completely understandable fashion at the beginning of the movie, but then it trails off completely and isn't compelling at all. Um, and like what, one of the friends I was watching this with, she was just like, they should have just done that ex- whole concept in the first like half hour of the movie, which I think is completely correct. And there's like this series of heists where they're kind of stealing or obtaining different things to try and get to the point where they can interact with Kenneth Branagh. And the he- none of the heists are fun. Well, the, th- the problem with the movie, one of the many problems with the movie, is how much time it spends on all the Kenneth Branagh stuff before they even get to the time travel yeah. business in a they significant They can explain it so way. much more simply in literally, like, the first half hour of the film. Yeah. And, I mean, I was thinking a lot about Looper watching this movie, yeah, me too. Which I'm sure a lot of people have seen, but if you haven't, um, that was Ryan Johnson's movie where Bruce Willis plays the, like the future version of Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's sent back in time to like kill his past self. And that's not a perfect film, but the like mechanics of the plot and the time travel stuff are handled really well. I haven't seen it in a while, but I remember being very impressed by the way that stuff was depicted. And it doesn't go out of its way to like complicate the sort of mythology of this concept that Ryan Johnson created for that film. Right. Whereas with this movie, like I do think the central idea is pretty interesting and could be really cool. And the two action sequences that are really kind of thrilling to watch are the scene that you just described where they're fighting the people who are clearly themselves in this like storage facility, which is shot really well. It reminded me a little bit of the scene in Inception where Joe Gordon-Levitt is in the hallway where it's like this gravity 
goes and he's that's like revolving yeah. around him. Obviously, gravity still exists in this, but it like everything's just kind of off a little bit in a way that was really cool. Yeah, and they made all the actors like film everything forwards and backwards, which is nuts, yeah. and it worked really well. And then there's a car chase that is just shot really well like Christopher Nolan knows how to direct a movie right and there's some sort of time business with it and then they kind of return to that same car chase later which isn't as interesting but I just thought like okay so if you had really focused on like the actual time travel stuff and like the concept of paradox which I'm sure Christopher Nolan is very interested in because of his obsessions with this stuff and like the characters interacting with each other in like a future or past context which obviously has been done many times by many different like writers of science fiction but like is repeated over and over again because it's compelling to us that's so much more appealing than this like huge convoluted business with Kenneth Branagh as this arms dealer and like basically He's trying to put together this huge weapon that is essentially a horcrux. Like it's Which they nine- refer to as the algorithm. Like the final act is all to do with collecting the pieces of the algorithm, which are literally portrayed as lumps of metal, like a large six inch square lump of metal, which will fit onto another lump of metal to make a kind of sp- like spear. And that's the algorithm. And that's going to like cause the end of the world or whatever in the future it's, it's something to do with like nuclear technology and it's Terrible. like it's basically like a nuclear bomb right yeah but it's an algorithm okay <laughs> and that stuff is so a confusing like you just don't understand what they're talking about and it's not interesting and it gets away from the stuff in the movie that is genuinely like fun to watch even to me someone who was like I don't care about these characters and I don't know what's happening there were still a couple of sequences where I was engaged with the movie because there are some kind of essential things about the situation he set up that are compelling right and but all of the like window dressing with the actual plot is boring and nonsensical and it was a situation where I was like if this were a person who actually did get edited or had a co-screenwriter. It would be a situation where someone would read this and be like, okay, clearly you have some interesting ideas here, but like, this is really confusing. And why don't we just hone in on the good stuff and write another draft? And I do think it's a, like complicated. Obviously it's going to be really, really fascinating to see what happens with his career in the wake of the current HBO Max situation. Cause it seems like he's done with Warner Brothers, which is where he's been for the past 20 years. But like, I do understand where he's coming from. He is basically the person, the individual person who has made Warner Brothers the most money over the past 20 years. So like, I get why you would be like, I don't want your notes. Like, leave me alone, right? Like, I'm just going to do my thing. And he's probably had some fucking dumbass studio notes over the years. Absolutely. Like, you know, you hear stories from writers and directors about the absolutely inane things that people from studios and TV networks have told them to do, right? But everybody needs an editor. And, you know, he works with his wife, Emma Thomas, on his movies. She's, like, the main producer. And I have no doubt that she is an unbelievably skilled and talented producer because she's managing these massive, massive productions. But also, whenever you hear about her reading his scripts, you're like, oh, okay, so she also has terrible taste? (laughs) Well, if they're married, obviously, you know... There are people in marriages who I'm sure give each other, like, great constructive feedback, but, like, clearly her role is not to be, like, 
okay, let's work on this script together. Like her function is obviously more administrative in a impressive sense. Like I'm not saying that in any kind of denigrating way. Like she's doing a lot of really complicated and hard stuff, but it's more in the sense of like, how do we get this in huge production to actually happen as opposed to like, let's work on your vision of this screenplay. That's my impression from the outside, right? Whereas if you have a producer who you're not married to, perhaps then they might be willing to say, like, the script sucks. <laughs> I'm just speculating. It is hard. Like, who wants to be the person to say that to someone who has that much power? Like, this happens to people at this level. Like, we've talked about this with Quentin Tarantino and Aaron Sorkin and J.K. Rowling before, right? Like, it is a complex situation, but also the movies tend to suffer when you get to that level. So, you know... I would love to see him make, like, a $50 million movie as opposed to a yep. $200 million movie, which he might do, depending on what winds up happening with all the studios. I mean, we should talk also about the woman stuff in this movie, which is just, like, oh. I mean, there are several female characters in this movie, which yes. is more than in some of his other movies. So you've got Clements Peasy, who plays kind of the Q from James Bond character, who, you know, explains some science to the protagonist. And you also have, like an arms dealer. And she is repeating a concept we saw in one of the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, which is where you've got one antagonist is introduced, but it turns out that they're like the face of the other antagonist. It's like a fake out, which is just foolish and nonsensical, but it's like, oh, you thought her husband was in charge of the company, but actually it's the women, which is tiresome. But whatever. She shows up in a few scenes and has very little interesting screen time. And then you have Elizabeth Debicki, who... It's in this like abusive relationship with Kenneth Branagh, but like all of the dialogue they have together, like almost all of the emotive dialogue in the film is between them and is him being like, oh, if I can't have you, then no one can. And I'm like, could anything be more basic like than this depiction of an abusive relationship? It is truly cartoonish. That one line, I was just like, you you know what he's going to say before he says it? Uh, literally, and I was like, literally. Surely not. Surely not. And then he so does. Cringy. And I was like, no. And... <sighs> Again, I think she's pretty good in the movie, actually. I mean, she's a great actress. So I mean, it's a I... classic. She's trying her best role, you know? Yes. There's a line where Robert Pattinson is explaining that this device is going to, like, end all of human civilization forever. It's like the nuclear device, and it's also like an entropy machine or something. And it's going to, like, end, you know, all of humankind. And she's been obsessed with the fact that her abusive husband is like controlling her relationship with her son and kind of poisoning this relationship. And that's the only reason why she's still with him is that she doesn't want to lose access to her son. And he's like, everyone who ever existed or like will ever exist will die. And she goes from the like bed, she's like, including my son. And we're like, yeah, we <laughs> it's get just, it. It's truly hysterical. And also like the timeline of their relationship is extremely confusing because yeah. the kind of finale relies on there's these two kind of subplots running simultaneously. So there's like the main fight where the main characters are participating in a temporal pincer movement. But like I said, we don't know who they're <laughs> fighting against. Like they're going to go would retrieve this thing from this like Russian bunker but the soldiers they're fighting are just like they're like NPCs they're doing nothing um, and then the other kind of element of this subplot is that Elizabeth Debicki has also gone back in time so she can spend some time with her husband in like the last period where they were happy together but kind of the implication is that this was like two weeks ago but the way they set up with that relationship makes it seem like they've been estranged for a really really long period of time I don't 
I don't think it's that the last time they were happy together. I think she's just supposed to be. But they're on a yacht together. Him. Yeah, but yes, they're but they're on a yacht together, and it's kind of the implication is that like you know there was some kind of positive feeling they can attach to that holiday they were in Vietnam. But when she's introduced it, at the beginning, it seems like they've been completely estranged for years. It's the scene where he says he'll let her go if she agrees to abandon her son. So yeah. it's not that they've been having a great time. It's that moment because she smashed a bu- like a plate of strawberries on the floor and you see the smashed strawberries. But they also implied that, that was a long time ago. So it it's not it's, that it was it's, so... It's like, confusing. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's not that like... It was back when things were great. It's they were fighting, but she just does a thing where she's like, let's not fight. It'll all be great. Which she falls for, which frankly is plausible because men are very stupid. So if like a beautiful woman is like, it's fine. Let's make out. I bought that as a thing. But like, it doesn't make any sense chronologically based on the way they've set up the rest of the movie. But uh, the whole thing is quite tasteless. I mean, the foolish. fact that the one, like, the one evocative emotional concept in the movie is the abusive relationship between the villain and his wife. So it's like, first of all, you've failed if you've given your villain way more emotional background than your protagonist. And also, it's like, the whole movie is so kind of conceptually bland. It's so weird to have such a upsetting but poorly handled concept as, like, the core of the emotional arc, where it's like, you actually don't need to have, like, a woman being slapped around by her husband in this, like, bland mainstream blockbuster. Like, that doesn't happen in Mission Impossible or whatever. Which is what this film is kind of on the same level as, but overcomplicated. Yeah, you're right. It just feels really out of place because there's nothing else happening. It's not a drama. No. It's like Christopher Nolan decided this movie was a drama for those characters and no one else. And it's like, okay, well, it's it's a bad one. <laughs> yeah. And... I just find Nolan really kind of fascinating as a figure, as someone who has like grown up going to the movies, seeing his films, right? Because he's been, he's consistently made movies with bad depictions of women for my entire, you know, movie going Which we have accepted. We've accepted and moved on. (laughs) And we've discussed this. I mean, Inception is not his worst offense, but it's not a good one either, right? But part of what's kind of interesting in a paradoxical way to me about him, which I'm sure that we have mentioned in the other episodes on Nolan that we've done, is that, like, the gossip I have heard through the grapevine about him is that, like, he's a very nice man who's a very good boss and obviously has a great relationship with his wife who produces all of his movies. Like, I do not know him personally, so I'm not making any kind of, like, strong, you know, statement on this. The impression I get of him is that he is extremely professional and organized, which is not something that generally gets brought up in sort of promotional interviews for directors because it's far flashier to kind of focus on when directors are acting like total maniacs which I think is why like when last year or something there was some news story about him like forbidding people from sitting down on set and it's like he didn't forbid people from sitting down on set especially since like his movies routinely you know include 80 year old actors but like that it's not kind of it's like a sort of dog bites man kind of situation where it's like it's not newsworthy to be like oh this director comes in under budget and just seems like a boring bureaucrat, which is kind of the vibe you get from him. Like he's obsessed with narrative structure and he's obsessed with his film set being all organized and he's a control freak, but not to the point where he's like screaming at people all the time, which is kind of the vibe you get from quite a lot of iconic filmmakers. 
Well, right. Like, I, I'm not going to name names, but, like, there are people who make more kind of, like, progressive or perhaps artistically interesting movies who I have heard horrible things about, right? Who are, like, beloved by many people on, like, film Twitter. And it's, like, obviously all art is personal to the people who make it, but the paradox between the personal behavior of people who make art and the art that gets produced, I think, is obviously something that we've talked about a lot in the past few years, we in, like, a societal context, right? But I think is still, like, really complex to reckon with. And this is a case where... I, I think we do give a lot more attention to the people who like make really beautiful art and then you find out that they've done something horrible and you're like, how can that be? And I think Christopher Nolan is an incredibly gifted filmmaker and also someone who it's tempting to be like, maybe he should just direct a screenplay that he didn't write. But obviously he has these preoccupations with specific themes. So like he should be writing his own screenplays. It's just that he needs someone to like help him express what he would like to express. But he's kind of the opposite, where, like, sometimes he'll make a brilliant movie, and sometimes he'll make a movie that kind of is bad, or in this case is really bad. But, like, he'll sometimes have offensive stuff in the movies that's kind of upsetting to watch. But it seems like in person he's just kind of a nice guy. And, like, that is how art works sometimes. And who knows? Like, something's in his brain that we will never understand. And he's I mean, expressing also it the this stuff way, that's right? in like, his movies that's offensive is, like, so fucking basic. Yes. It's like yeah. it's like the the, the the framing of the racism and sexism sexism in his movies, which is absolutely a pair of recurring themes, is just like it's so unexamined. Like he has just has no interest in kind of self critique in those levels at all. To the point where I was actually pleasantly surprised when like you know Interstellar managed to have some female characters who kind of seemed like people, and I was like, okay, he's going up. And it's like in the next film, it was like, well, we're we're gonna stop now. So it's kind of, it's not better or worse, but it's definitely different from when you watch a filmmaker and you can see like precisely what their like fucking weird like sex stuff is happening. Like you're watching a Tarantino film and you're like, oh, didn't need to know this. I don't know. It's not better or worse, but it's like he just doesn't care. Well, it I think it is less bad. Not in the sense that it's like, oh, it's totally fine and no big deal. Like we're obviously talking about it. But I think the reason that we can watch his movies and still feel affectionately towards them and him is that I don't watch these movies and feel like I would feel creeped out having a conversation. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel like, I don't feel like Christopher Nolan is going out with the weekend and like making skin suits, you know, (laughs) where there's some filmmakers where I'm like, "Mm, could be. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't just say that because I've heard he's a nice guy. Like it's just a different vibe from someone like Tarantino, whom I have heard is a total asshole. And that's been reported publicly. So I feel like I can say that. Like you watch his movies and obviously he's like a very gifted filmmaker, but like there's just a quality where it's like, ugh, like it really like makes my skin crawl. And obviously there are many women who love his films. That's fine. But like, I feel really turned off by them a lot of the time. And with Nolan, it's, there's, it's something there's something sort of banal about the sexism, right? Where you're just like, yeah, well, he's killed another one. But <laughs> I mean, one thing like, you'll say for him is he's certainly not like horny for sexism, you know? <laughs> no. Well, right. It's yeah. It's not sex. Like his it's movies are really, like, you know, terminally unhorny and really unphysical. Like one of the things I was like, like you were saying, kind of about um, 
comparing this to Looper is like, I think I only wrote like one piece about this movie because I wasn't reviewing it. And comically, the one piece I wrote about it was like, what happens when you poop in Tenet? <laughs> like, do, what happens when you're going backwards? Because they go into all the logistics of like, oh, your body's going backwards. It's like, do you like suck the poop back in or whatever? But also it's like, um, one of the most evocative moments in Looper, if not the most evocative, is you see this random like no-name character who in a different point in their timeline, their limbs are being removed and you see in the present day this person running and like slowly losing their arms and legs which is an unbelievably horrifying image it sticks with you it certainly stuck with me even though I saw this movie once when it came out many years ago and it really illustrates very well the time travel concept of the movie which in other circumstances may not necessarily make sense in terms of logic but like in the narrative it makes perfect sense because you have that kind of amazing image illustrating it and with Tenet the only images that really like stick or the bullet and when once you get to the car chase the car chase is well shot because it's Christopher Nolan but like as soon as you start thinking about it you're like well the car is moving this way and like the guy who's driving it is moving the other way and you know it becomes really overcomplicated. and if Christopher Nolan was more kind of engaged with the body and the physicality and the sense of danger which he really is in Dunkirk for the first time the movie would work better and it doesn't because he isn't well, this is the thing with Inception too, right? Like, and I like Inception, but that is a movie with problems. And he's doing all these, like, you know, dreamscapes, and this is what's happening in your unconscious, and it's like a hotel. I just, it's like, it's so amazing, because it's like, I love the idea, because it's like, that movie famously um, is cribbing very heavily off this anime movie called Paprika. And the difference between those two films is that Christopher Nolan is like, well, as you know, everyone's dreamscape, like mine, is a perfectly pristine, angular, architectural sketch. And everyone else is like, no, my my dreamscape is like a surreal swamp. And like, you watch Paprika, and you can tell that Inception is influenced by it, but it's much more surreal and bizarre, and kind of, there's lots of weird kind of, just like the dimensions that they're working with are very different. And Christopher Nolan just can't let anything be dirty or ambiguous. And the lack of ambiguity makes it harder to understand, which he doesn't seem to understand. He seems to think that, like, if you explain a really complex topic, if you explain it to death, it will be more interesting and more easy to understand. And it's like, no, you need to be able to explain this in, like, a minute and a half. (laughs) Preferably with, like, an image. (laughs) This is what's so kind of bizarre about Tenet to me, to kind of wrap up, is, like, Inception is a movie with way too much exposition, even though I understand why it's in there. Like, the concept is complicated. But basically, the first hour of that movie is just them sitting around being like, let me explain how this works and this works and this works. So that then you can get to the second hour and a half, and then there's no exposition, and then you can just enjoy the action movie part. Whereas Tenet, it's just like random stuff gets dropped in, and you're like, wait, was I supposed to hear what that was like I don't understand and also like in the final 45 minutes of the movie they introduce Aaron Taylor Johnson and they're like here's this new white guy and I'm like first of all I did not realize that this character was meant to be a character because when he first shows up I just assumed he was like goon number three and then eventually you realize it's Aaron Taylor Johnson with a beard and you're like oh okay this is actually a key character (laughs) and he's like a crucial element of the final act I don't know that he even really is it's just he that he's played a point in presentation explaining where and how the final act is going to take place. And I didn't understand where it was and neither of us understood who they were fighting. <laughs> so. I mean, when he was doing that PowerPoint, I completely tuned him out. I could not comprehend well, anything that was happening. What you need to understand, Morgan, is that there is going to be a big hole and they're going to go through the hole and then they're going to come out the other side. <laughs> 
we have to mention also briefly before we finish that the sound mixing in this movie is a fucking nightmare. People have complained about this with Nolan for years, and I've never been particularly bothered. Like I didn't Same. find Dunkirk. I've, I've never had bad. any issues with his like hearing. Yeah, hearing kind of the, the problem people complain about is like dialogue versus like music and sound effects and stuff. I mean, possibly it's different in theaters, but I watched this movie. I watched it fucking on Amazon, bought it on a legal download off Amazon, watched it projected onto a wall with surround sound speakers and I was sitting there twiddling the volume dial every 30 seconds so I could hear the dialogue without like deafening everyone in the building with all the explosions. Yeah, I had to change it so many times and in Dunkirk, which again, people complained about a lot, it felt very intentional to me. Like it's very hard to understand what Tom Hardy is saying in that movie, but like it's on purpose because he's in a fighter jet and like the people he's talking to also would not really be able to understand Yeah, I had no issues with that. That's totally fine. In this, I was just like, what the fuck? It's really hard to hear a lot of the dialogue. The shift between the dialogue and the explosions and the music at certain points is so dramatic that I was like frantically <laughs> lowering the volume. And that's another thing where it's like, okay, if there's any quality control at the studio, they would be like, look, man. You just gotta change this. Like, this is just not It's just really weird because it's like, it's something that people kind of criticize quite regularly. And this is the first one where both you and I have really picked up on that. And it's possibly because it's the first one we've both watched like at home only. But I've never had that problem kind of watching Inception on DVD. But he even responded to this and he was like, kind of like, well, if people have a problem with that, that's their problem. And it's like, I mean, first of all, it's an accessibility problem. Like if you're, if people who have any kind of hearing difficulties can't hear your dialogue it is a problem in like a big mainstream movie. But also like, I have seen people like fucking tweeting being like, oh, I had to change my volume dial all the time. So clearly it's everyone is having this issue. Yes. And I've seen Dunkirk multiple times on the Blu-ray at home. And I'm sure I changed the volume a couple times, but like basically it was fine. And this one I was like, what? It's just kind of hard for me to tell how like artistically you can argue in favor of that. Because it's like, what artistic merit are like the minority of people getting from having a poorly sound mixed film where the explosions are like way louder than the dialogue and the dialogue you can't hear because the music's in the way. Like that's not, it's, there's not really any way to argue in favor of that. He's obviously seeing something that we are not. And I'm not Is saying it possible that, that he has different sense, ears. Like, Maybe Christopher Nolan just has different ears. He must. I mean, there was some profile of him in the New York Times, I think when Interstellar came out, where he was like sitting in all the different parts of the theater when they were testing the Dolby sound because, like, he needed every individual tiny level to, like, be perfect. So I feel like he must have quite sensitive hearing. But you would think that that would make him want the opposite of what has happened here, right? Like, it's very... I have no explanation. It's very confusing to me. But, uh, you know, again, we'll see what happens with his next movie because... I'm very intrigued to see what his next film is. I hope it's something interesting. I mean, Dunkirk was literally the one before this. So it's not like he's made three in a row that were all stinkers. Yeah. I'm sure he can bounce back. But um, I don't think it's going to be with Warner Brothers. And this was a hot pile of garbage. So it will be interesting to see what the funders are like. Maybe, you know, could we have a script first? (laughs) Like, you know, what's happening? It's time for him to do a rom-com. I literally cannot fathom <laughs> what that would look like. I mean, I would love to see it. I, sincerely, I would love to witness whatever. I would the hell love that would to be. see Chris Nolan bring his directorial skills to finding out what uh, comedy timing means. 
I mean, there are quips in his movies. It's true. This it's one, true. not so much. Mm. There are like two jokes and they don't land. The robot in Interstellar has has some has some jokes. More funny than this entire movie put together is that one robot from Interstellar. We don't recommend Tenet. <laughs> in case you hadn't figured that out. Yeah, I mean, this movie is long. It's two and a half hours long. Long. An hour in, I was like, oh god. <laughs> There's an hour and a half left. Yeah, and like, it's gonna be an hour and a half more of explaining. It was rough. It was it was very rough. I, I cannot fathom putting this on a best of the year list. I <laughs> am mystified. And there are some people who might like yeah people i genuinely respect are like out there being like oh yeah it's this it's so enigmatic and i'm like no 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 i've seen enigmatic (laughs) (laughs) oh i mean god love them but i disagree and please listen to our best of 2020 lists because we actually have some really cool and offbeat recommendations for you so yes that will be next week i was very thrilled to discover when looking back over this past year that our Best of 2019 uh, episode was one of our most listened to episodes of the year. So clearly people were listening to that episode and I hope watch some of the movies that we recommended. Um, I think it's been a really great year for movies, actually. But I think people haven't really been watching new stuff. I hadn't really been keeping up with new things even. So um, I hope that we are able to provide you with some recommendations for some great new films next week. Tenet will not be appearing on, <laughs> on either of our lists. Uh, that will be next week. And the week after that, we will be talking about the Kenneth Branagh Much Do About Nothing. So we've got multiple Kenneth Branagh Delightful films. all-star film. Denzel Washington, Keanu Reeves, Emma Thompson, Kenneth Branagh. What's his name from House MD? Love it. Robert Sean Leonard. That guy. Yes. He was the hot thing at the time. Kate yeah, Beckinsale looking about 12 years old. She basically was, I think. I mean, I'm sure she was like 18 or something, but she was a baby. So, uh, yeah, a classic. And then we have, that's a listener request. We have many, many listener requests coming up. um, So it will be fun to do those. And on Patreon, we have our listener mail episode um, in which we answered many, many questions from all of you. About our lives, um, about the film industry, about movies we liked, about book recommendations. There's a lot of questions in there. Yeah. So if you want to listen to that, you can go to patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.